You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Granddaddy formed in Modesto, California in 1992 by Jason Lytle, Kevin Garcia, and Aaron Birch. Jim Fairchild and Tim Dryden joined in 1995 as Granddaddy put out several self-release cassettes. After signing with Will Records, they released their debut album, Under the Western Freeway, in 1997. For their second album, Granddaddy signed with V2 and began recording in a farmhouse outside of Modesto in 1999. The Software Slump was eventually released in the year 2000. In this episode, Jason Lytle looks back on how the Software Slump came together. This is The Making of the Software Slump. My name is Jason Lytle, and i the lead dude from a band called Granddaddy talking about an album we made called The Software Slump. I'm just so amazed that it kind of became what it became to so many people, you know. And obviously at the time, I'm drowning in like self-doubt. When you've tracked mostly everything by yourself, and then you killed yourself mixing it, and then you had to suffer through mastering it... <laughs> I mean, I was just, I needed a break from it. That's what it was. I was too close to it. On one hand, it's kind of cool. When I don't know what I've made, that's kind of an indication that I'm on to something at least interesting. But I definitely, there wasn't a point of confidence where I was just like, oh man, heck yeah. I'm going to blow people's minds with this one. Get ready, world. Here we go. That was never like the furthest thing from that. Drift again, 2000 man. You lost your maps, you lost the plans. Did you hear them yell, land, damn it, land? I will try hard to remember what it was like, you know, around the recording of Software Slump. We had just gotten done doing a bit of touring around Under the Western Freeway, which was an album that came before that. And uh, it ended up being one of those situations where we did this really modest release with it. And then it just kind of, you know, we were like, oh, all right, whatever. And then all of a sudden, Something happened, some word got out, and then uh, there was some label interest, and then all of a sudden there was like, this excitement happening, and it was happening a little bit over here, but even more so overseas. So uh, based on the activity of Under the Western Freeway and a lot of demo songs that I had, we'd actually gotten a recording deal. 
And that was really exciting to me because at that point I was really excited about recording and it was also fresh and new. And it was just a new frontier for me. At this point, we'd actually, we got in this house out in the country, about 40 miles east of Modesto, which Modesto is already kind of podunk to begin with, but I had to take it even a bit further. It was this big sprawling house on 40 acres and we just hauled everything out there and and we're, you know, hanging out. We kind of turned into like a bit of a commune. We would rehearse out there for tours and then we would uh, make records and just, you know, set up gear all over the place and, and experiment with all kinds of different recording techniques. And I remember as I was finishing Under the Western Freeway, we had all just heard OK Computer for the first time. And it was just like, I think it was like there was one song left to go on Under the Western Freeway. And we heard OK Computer and that had just like it had completely blown my mind. And I was just already fixated on, you know, how exciting and futuristic and weird and kind of enigmatic maybe the next record could be. And that definitely paved the way or sort of started planting the seeds for uh, the sophomore slump. And uh, eventually we, we moved out of that sprawling commune because I realized that I liked working efficiently and quickly, and there was just too much back and forth driving. You know, sometimes you'd have to go get, you know, two little adapters at Radio Shack, and that would eat up like half a day. So I just, uh, I realized efficiency was going to be the name of the game. And just working, you know, around the clock, I got a little farmhouse um, that was situated just outside of Modesto. And we set up all the gear in there. There was actually this Portuguese farmer and he had a bunch of, you know, vineyards and orchards around. And I was just the weirdo guy that lived out in his garage. They had this uh, kind of detached garage in-law apartment situation happening. And we just hauled all the gear into there. And I just lived in it and and worked around the clock. And the band would come and go and come and go. But that was, we called it Little Portugal. That was where we recorded the album, uh, Software Slump. I was definitely a man with a mission on software slump. I was just so focused and I had such a clear idea. You know, I spent a lot of time by myself and I spent a lot of time really kind of mapping out what I was after. And if anything, it was this culmination of all this new, exciting gear that I acquired and just the state of naivety that I was still in just with recording and how excited I was about, you know, way less constraints and just being a little bit more experimental. But I think I was excited about a lot of music that was happening at the time. This was that period in time, too, where it was way more common for bands to be making records at home. And they were starting to sound like pretty good, too. Like all of this gear had become just user friendly enough to where you know, you didn't have to have first and second engineers. And it was becoming way more DIY friendly. And the quality of gear that you could get that was 
way more DIY friendly was allowing people to make pretty good full range, better sounding records. And a lot of that analog gear that was getting sold off because everyone was getting so excited about digital platform, whether it be ADATs or computers, a lot of that analog stuff was coming up super cheap. So I kind of clued in to the concept early on that having a hybrid situation of doing certain things on analog, certain things on digital, and then combining them, you kind of get the best of both worlds. And I think people do a lot more of that now, but it was still kind of like a a wild idea back then. The whole Central Valley is really dusty. It's harvesting season between like July and September. So it's just like, yeah, everything was always covered in dust, it seemed all the time. But the heat was a big deal. You know, if I remember correctly, I just had like one of those little crappy little AC wall units that I bought myself and just shoved into one of the windows and that kind of did the job. But I mean, no matter what, you're you're going to be sweltering. And there was a fair amount of analog gear that was crammed into my little bedroom slash control room too, which had, you know, I had a a one inch 16 track, no, one inch eight track reel to reel machine in there. I had like this big Soundcraft console and a couple of ADAP machines that are tied together. But then I had, you know, racks of uh, compressors and preamps and all kinds of, you know, I'm sure everything was probably on most of the time. So you can imagine the amount of heat that that generates in an already hot room. It just got a bit comical. Uh, I was just like in there, my boxer was just like sweating on a continual basis. It was like, I don't know, that was all part of it. You just kind of get used to always being hot when you grow up in that area of California. I mean, if anything, that imposes this sort of necessary little bit of little bit of pressure to get the take right. It's just like, all right, the longer the AC stays off, the more broiling it's going to get. So the quicker I get this takedown, and it's like, who knows how much of the recording was actually affected by that. (laughs) There could have been a lot of situations where I'm like, fuck it, that's good enough. I can't take this anymore. I have pretty good stamina already as it is. And it's like, I can go, you know, even with like athletic pursuits and like cycling and running and stuff, I I like kind of going long and, and kind of pushing myself, but it's like, with music and creativity, there's actually something else happens where it's like you start getting these really wild results when you start pushing yourself past the brink. But back then it was like, you know, my, my small town version of it was, you know, I would just, I would just kind of push it a little bit far with the alcohol. And every now and then, if I wanted to really extend the race, then maybe there was some speedy stuff that I brought into the, brought into the equation but it's not sustainable i mean it's and if anything a key thing that i learned was it seems like a good idea at first and you actually might get some interesting results for a little while but it's not sustainable i mean usually the big trick is just like how can i turn reality off how can i not think about bills and not think about car insurance and not think about all these sort of like worldly concerns that that are just like everyday you know nonsense and think differently and unlock these little doors in my head that are kind of stuck due to the heaviness of reality. I heard all your controls were jammed It's just nice to have you back again 
He's simple, he's dumb, he's the pilot, the lead track. If I remember correctly, this was this was later in the process. Like I, I don't feel like the album had had a very interesting beginning. And I can't remember who was trying to be the first song at one point, but it just wasn't like I wasn't feeling it. I think it was a last minute decision to put something that long and that sort of experimental as the lead track. I'm glad we did. You know, a lot of people are like couldn't imagine it any other way. So that's cool. For me personally, it's a bit of a cautionary tale. Granddaddy as a band had gone from like total obscurity other than, you know, just like a few little venues and coffee houses and, and whatnot around town. And then, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're on planes, we're with gear and we're playing in other countries and we're getting taken out to dinner and just, you know, we're getting press in these well-known, you know, magazines overseas. And, you know, I don't know, I've read the stories. I, I see how things tend to kind of, there's a common unfortunate trajectory that kind of happens and, a lot of situations like this. And for me, it was just like, it was a cautionary tale. It was just like, don't, don't get too big for your britches. You know, all these new people who are like telling you all these things. It's like, don't, don't forget who you are. Don't forget where you're from. And uh, I think most of all, that's what that song is. It's sort of me just kind of having that talk with myself and yeah, kind of trying to do it in a three part way based on my, obsession with paranoid android a year before that <laughs> i like i look back at the masters of uh he's simple he's dumb he's the pilot and they're definitely there's multiple versions of each section and yeah i had to mix them together i remember taking that to mastering going can you piece these together can you piece these three parts together and make them sound like one song and uh, he's like yeah no problem so that was a big relief because it was all kind of in my head but whether or not they could be assembled and sound seamless was a whole other matter The fact that it's that long puts a lot of pressure on the buildup being interesting and and things you know moving and evolving and making making sense sonically. That's why it's always nerve wracking. I've done I've done scaled down acoustic versions of it, and it's just like it drives me insane because it's just like you don't have all those building elements, and they're so crucial to like making that song kind of work. Yes, I snuck in the keyboard riff, that annoying melody from AM 180 into um, He's Simple, He's Dumb, He's the Pilot. 
And uh, it's something that I pointed out a few times on different, you know, Instagram or Twitter or whatever. I'll get chatting with like fans and I mention the fact that it's in there or people will find it themselves. And it's always a cool little nugget. You got to listen pretty hard, but it's, it's there and it's, uh, it's undeniable. The AM 180 was, um, it wasn't a big hit or it was, it was, it became very popular and it became like this inescapable, uh, the song actually ended up in this movie called 28 Days Later, which was like this big zombie movie back then. And like countless people were just like, oh, I discovered you guys through, you know, hearing that song in the movie. And that was like, that was exactly why I put that song in there. It was just like, it was probably the closest thing to um, getting, you know, lots of adulation and notoriety from this far reaching number of people and just be like, oh, yeah, it's just this thing, the song that I made out in some crappy country house with an annoying melody. But yeah, that, so that was kind of that song in particular was just like, don't let all the talk and don't let all the hype and just keep doing your thing. At some point, it, it does serve you well just to put on the blinders. Not that you can't appreciate all the cool, weird stuff that comes along with all the experiences that you have, you know, leaving your hometown and seeing the world and stuff. But uh, But it was still it's just like, you know, Keep your head on straight. Are you giving in two thousand men? I was a huge Kiss fan when I was a little kid. Ace Freely, who was my favorite member of Kiss, he does a version of 2000 Man. And that was the version that I knew my whole life. Like, I was just like, yeah, Ace Freely, 2000 Man. So I didn't even know that it was a Rolling Stones song. I didn't know Rolling Stones had a song called 2000 Man. I thought it was Kiss. But I love the fact that it, it exists in its own weird way. Anytime there's like some dude floating in space, or somebody floating in space on a long tether who's just like looking at more so than anything else. I think it's like being on this side and looking out at the world and just sort of, I seem, I feel like I did a lot of that when I was a little kid. My mom and dad divorced and she, my mom used to move to all these different places when I was a little kid and she would always work. So I was just sort of left to wander around, you know, while she was at work. And I was just, I did a lot of sitting and just like people watching or just like world watching, you know, I wasn't necessarily in the house playing video games or watching TV. And it's crazy that to think now that she was fine with, you know, probably like seven or eight or nine, just like wandering the streets, you know, by myself. But, and I think, you know, it's like, the shipwreck, the guy lost at sea, or like the, you know, the cosmonaut floating in space, tether. It's just like, that's imagery that, that I can latch onto pretty easily. I don't know. It's just part of my personality, I suppose.
the Elliot Smith connection with the second section and he's simple, he's dumb, he's the pilot, the slow, kind of pretty, did you love this world? Did this world not love you? Part. There's kind of a cool little side story to that too, because we we did a tour, a fairly decent sized tour in the US with Elliot and his band. You know, say you're a bigger act, you're gonna go on tour and then the label will send you all these potential openers. So we ended up being pitched to Elliot and he was into it. And he was, apparently he was a fan of the album. He'd been listening to it, but we had, it was like one of the first or second nights that we were, we were on tour and we had a day off and we were hanging out, like all of us granddaddy guys and Elliot and his band were hanging out kind of on the grassy area in this hotel and we're, and we're just meeting each other and we're talking and stuff. And Elliot started talking about that song there's one weird spot in that section where I throw in this strange chord that isn't happening anywhere else. It's right before the, uh, like the do 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 do. It's like after the after the vocals kind of trail off, and then like the synth solo really kind of kicks in full bore, and I just sort of slip in this this like an A chord or something that doesn't happen anywhere else. And that's what he mentioned. He's like, yeah, man, like it's happening. And then, and then that chord, <laughs> which I love that. That's just like, of course, there's like tons of other crap going on in the song and all kinds of things you can mention. He like hones in on that one, that one little immediate one time only happening chord shift. Yeah. Apparently, he liked the song well enough. And I think it was his idea. We started, I don't even know if we were playing it for a while, but like his band kept on giving us shit. They were just like, well, when are you going to play that song? Cause I was too afraid. I didn't want to, I didn't even want to try and tackle it. We didn't play it for a long time. I was just like, no, it's just like, I don't want to destroy it. You know, my idea was always like, I've made my masterpiece. I don't want to go up on stage and do like a shitty sketch of it on a nightly basis. But, uh, Eventually, we started trying it in sound checks. And eventually, you know, when we did, I think he was into it. I, if I remember correctly, too, it was like, it was a surprise, like the first time. It's kind of one of those things where you're up on stage and you're just looking down. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah. You're like, huh? Huh? And then he's like walking over, gets on the mic, and he's just sort of singing that high part. I was like, holy shit. And then it just kind of became a thing. Um, and then it was like, yeah, then it was just heavy because of that when he wasn't around anymore. And then when that section of the song would come up, it was like, it was pretty, pretty deep. And it was actually tough to get through that part after when it was, <clears throat> when he was soon after he had passed away, it was like, whew, that was tough. I mean, I wish I could remember more about the torture that I went through making that, <laughs> making that song, but it might be good that I don't. But um, 
I don't know. It still baffles me, though. It's like, I still don't know what it is. And people have gone on and on and on about it. Jason Lee, you know, the skateboarder actor, um, named his kid after that song. He named his son Pilot after, apparently he was obsessed with that song. There's been a couple other crazy stories that go along with it. But I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. It is what it is, man. I just tapped into a moment. Hewlett. Hewlett's daughter, just short, tidy, cute little story. It's definitely, you know, a lot of people call it a palate cleanser. When you've just gone through something like he's simple, he's dumb, he's a pilot. It's just like, all right, let's lighten this up. It's not all serious. It's not all doom and gloom. This is actually going to be a fun ride. Hewlett was not a real person, but he was actually a name that I was giving my girlfriend's dad. I like the name Hewlett just because of the Hewlett-Packard thing. And uh, we lived close enough to Silicon Valley to where that sort of technological mystique, there was always that shadow. So kind of giving it a little twist like that. But um, it was basically, it was my girlfriend's dad who I really liked. He was super cool. He gave me this job that allowed me to make all this money, treating industrial wastewater, which I bring up in the song. There's a line in the song where I'm like, and I'm treating water, 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 water. It was a really weird job. I thought I was going to do it, you know, indefinitely. And then eventually he quit. And like the, the company, like everyone started like stealing stuff, like stealing cars and like driving across the border and like stealing checks out of the checkbooks. And like they, the whole company, it was a brand new company and started falling apart. And as soon as he jumped ship, I was like, I'm out of here. I didn't have to worry about disappointing him by leaving. I made my money. I was there for about two years. But it funded my first round of um, my four track, my mics, you know, all my guitars and keyboards, all the stuff that was basically the gear that allowed me to start learning how to write music and record music and, uh, and just kind of hunker down in the basement and take myself to home recording school. Sometimes, you know, you end up making friends with people's family members. And then when you break up with that person, then you don't get to hang out with them anymore. Then you end up missing their family members more than you do them. For me, it was very important to get the drums on that nice, big, wide tape. And they were great sounding machines. It was, it was Otari. Uh, I don't know. I, I ended up with an Otari because I live out in the country, and they're, apparently they're workhorses, and they're very low maintenance, and, uh, and they sound great as well. I was a drummer in the beginning, and then uh, it was a pretty good tool for writing songs and making demos, was being able to bang out the drums and stuff. The thing is, it's like Aaron, 
Birch is a way, way steadier, like really great metronome. He's much steadier and he's got a good relaxed feel. I liked to write kind of weird drum parts and sometimes there's like drum hooks and stuff. I think Aaron wasn't so much into that as I was, but he would learn them like really well, you know? So, but that one, there's, there's like that spazzy drum feel in that song. That was something that I wouldn't have been able to explain to him, although he does it killer every time, you know, we play it. But um, he's way steadier than me. So it's usually if I knew the song could be a little bit more kind of kind of wavy gravy or, you know, not so tidy, then I would kind of take a crack at it. But then some of them I pretty much knew uh, were going to be ones that he should do. So we kind of split the duties. I think most of the records, he ends up playing more drums than I do, but there's some where I was just like, I'd, I'd get antsy, you know, I'd have the drum set up and I'd just say, screw it, you know, just go for it. So it depended on the situation. I mixed that album myself, which still today kind of blows my mind just because mixing is such a, it's brutal. For me, it's like, it's a nightmare. And I'm sure the room was like not conducive to mixing. <laughs> There's a place that was called Circuit City and it was one of the first, you know, it was kind of predated uh, Best Buy. And um, they, and back then it was kind of unheard of, like this 30 day, no questions asked, return policy. So I'm just like, walking through the store scouring like what whatever it is that i can take home and use for, for 30 days a lot of times it was like stuff in the mixing process you know you get like multiple sets of speakers and it's even back then there was no recall there was like no it's like here we go hit record play and then fire up the uh, transports on the ADATs and you're just mixing in real time. And if some stupid little thing happens, bass is too hot or just like, oh, you didn't grab that guitar solo, then it's like stop, 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 rewind again. And then what's even funnier than that was I didn't really understand the mastering process. Like I didn't understand that you could take all the songs and the mastering guy will arrange them in the way, like I thought you had to mix everything in the order that that like and with the gaps in between the songs <laughs> so so it was obviously way i was making it way harder on myself than it needed to be but that's an indication of just how little i knew but how you know how, how much attention to detail and how fastidious i was being back then we were really fortunate because it sort of was this accepted genre you know of lo-fi i had made enough demos and I'd done enough. And I actually, I did this whole other album that never got released that apparently was the one that was floating around at the label, the unheard granddaddy album. It was actually called Don't Sock the Trier, which plenty of granddaddy nerds know about, but it was just never got like a proper release. But um, 
sounded decent. It was, I mean, it was a good, it was good enough sounding for me. That was very uh, reassuring because, you know, that meant that the budgets would come in and the money could just basically come right to me and I could just buy gear. And for me, that was, I was super fortunate that I went that route because I was kind of learning a trade at the same time. And it, you know, went on to serve me throughout all the granddaddy albums and allowed me to be able to speak on a certain level with other engineers and mixers and, and I kind of, you know, learn a trade, you know, and uh, I still do it to this day and I'm not that terrible at it. <laughs> Last night something pretty bad happened We lost a friend All shocked and broken Shut down, exploded I don't know, I got mixed emotions on the Jed the Humanoid thing. Uh, Jed is like, he just like won't go away. He's <laughs> I just thought it was a harmless, cute little story about an alcoholic robot and um, people really latched onto it. I, for me, it was just, it was, it was a way of talking about drinking too much and without just flat out saying, I drink too much, I drink too much, I drink too much. It was like blame it on the robot just kind of get the attention off me and put it on somebody else. I'm actually, I'm a firm believer in that whole, you know, you kind of have to watch what you write because your thoughts become real things. You can kind of create your future by just like, you know, believing things or writing things. It's almost like if you just like, if you start making it, if you start thinking about it, it starts becoming a real thing. So you kind of, I've had that come back to bite me in the ass a few times. So it's like, it's really shaped my writing now. I'm like, really, I'm really sensitive about like, I have to be really careful if I'm writing things that can come off as like unhealthy or destructive. Cause it'll just creep into like, it'll creep into real life. And, uh, I have to think back in a lot of those, a lot of those songs, you know, older granddaddy songs, this one in particular, and a few of the other ones off of this album. It's like, it's great to get these things out of your system, but it's just like, then you sing them on a nightly basis and you're constantly performing them. And you're always, you know, they, they just become a part of your being. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. Sometimes you just need to like get rid of things and just like be done with it. So I'm not sure what my relationship is with Jed, the humanoid, like maybe, I don't know. Maybe he wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> I don't know. I can't edit myself uh, 20 years ago. So. Jed had found her booze and drank every drop. He fizzled and
I kind of grew up in an environment like that, you know, families, drinkers, but it was always, you know, it's like social. It wasn't, I, I never, it was never really like, you know, alcoholic parents used to beat me. I wasn't like that with any of the guys in the band either. It was just like, you know, we grew up, we were, you know, I grew up amongst wild skateboarders, you know, we just like skated, we drank, we went to parties out in the country, you know, we got in fights, we just like, it was insane. A lot of those guys went on to become, you know, they joined motorcycle clubs and stuff. And it's like, some people died, some people went to jail. It's like, I was really, really lucky that I found this creative outlet and I was able to sort of expand my, my horizons and like see the world and become a little bit more cultured than I would have than I would have been, but I have this wild side of me, you know, and the whole, you know, skateboarding, punk rock, road trips, all, I did all that stuff before the band. And then the band thing happened. And that's just like one extended party and road trip too. You know, we're just like, you know, later on things became more available and it was all about keeping the party going, you know, and you get adjusted to this lifestyle and it sounds so Motley Crue, but like the tour is over and you go home and you're like, now what? You know, there's a lot of chemicals happening there too. Where you just you're so amped, you're so fired up, you're so wound up, and then you're just expected to go home and just sort of like, you know, sit there and be responsible. And I mean, I always did enjoy. Luckily, I was I loved riding my bike. I loved going camping, and these are all things that work a lot better if you don't feel like shit. So I always had that driving me to like detox, get my program together and just sort of clear my head. And that, that really helped me achieve an overall balance over the years, but it's been a slippery slope. And there's a lot of stuff that date back, you know, way to my youth, like entering into this line of work, it was bound to kind of go to next level <laughs> with my personality and just with the environment and like with all the people that you're around and on a regular basis. The busier we were with the band and the more traveling, you know, the more airports and venues and train stations and just like, you know, taxis and cities and just like sound, like I'm really sensitive to sound. My battery in my head wears down really quickly when I'm overexposed to stuff like that. And I was always dealing with that. So it's just like anytime you could get any kind of calm or any sort of like break from that sort of thing. The Crystal Lake is basically just about, once again, being thrust into all these situations all the madness of touring and playing shows and being in cities, which I've never been quite fond of, and uh, just really wishing I was somewhere else. We had an early sampler 
that Crystal Lake patch was basically just, you know, holding down some of those, the keys on the Kimball organ. And I just sampled them and then arranged them. And a lot of them are off tempo wise, but just, they're just janky enough to it's kind of charming. There's this guy that I know, he has a studio and a farmhouse outside of Modesto. And he let me store that, that organ at his studio. And um, I just thought I was just giving it to him. And he just contacted me recently. He's like, hey, Jay, yeah, you mind, uh, you know, coming by and picking up that organ? Like, like maybe I, he thought I was storing it. And uh, that apartment that I was in, it was like impossible. I had no room for it. But this house that I just moved into, there's actually room for it. So I'm actually going to Modesto in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to pick up that organ. So that Crystal Lake organ is coming back into my house after 20 plus years. I have the perfect spot for it against the wall. It's really colorful too. It has like all these rainbow keys and it's, it's that era of a uh, small compact church organ that makes all these completely random. Uh, it's just got tons of settings on it. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be like an old friend. There's a part of me that really romanticizes domesticity and having a steady, even-keeled life, but it's just uh, it's taken me a while to know to learn that I had a lot of stuff I had to get out of my system. I had a lot of things I had to prove to myself, and I think that I would have been a very, very unhappy person if I wouldn't have gone the route that I went with Granddaddy. Yeah, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been good if there was a lot of things that, that were left unrealized for me. and graphs is definitely uh directly about i got no time for girlfriends i certainly have no time for that one in particular and i would rather be in my control room making songs it's it's a trade-off that that i've come to terms with that it's like sorry it's not going to work i've learned i'm married to this other thing and i've sort of made that decision I didn't quite know. I thought for a while I could do both, but I know now that I can only do one. So bye-bye.
I have depression that swarms through my family. There's mental illness. Uh, it's something that I've always dealt with myself. You know, my kind of half-assed attempts at self-medicating takes me back to that slippery slope. What I have learned over the years is that, you know, physical activity and being outside and being around nature really helps me, really helps me achieve a balance. I just recently moved out, in a, out of an apartment to a small house with a yard. And it's just like, it's blowing my mind because I've already carved out these spots in the backyard where, you know, this is where my chair goes and it's under a tree and there's wind blowing. And it's just like direct shot to like meditative calmness. Like it's just like brings me immediate calm. I want to sleep. Underneath the Weeping Willow, I don't know if the song specifically, but that's imagery that's going to stay with me my whole life. You know, that's, I think that's always been my place of calm. It's like one of my favorite sounds on the planet is just like wind blowing through trees. That song is just basically aspiring to that calm state, that state of calm, that regenerative state of calm in order to deal with all the madness, you know, that, that inevitably comes back around again but yeah i'm still into it one thing i should point out too is the uh the little piano tinkles throughout the song was this like classical music trick of just like emulating nature through the instrument i was just i was trying to make little teardrops it's tears all around me They're so soundly Until I'm allowed finally Broken Household Appliance National Forest. For me, that was just kind of a no-brainer joke. There's a big problem with people dumping trash and garbage and appliances and TVs and stuff like the way Modesto is, I think with economics too, you know, people just get overwhelmed, overburdened and they're moving and they don't know what to do with their stuff. And they live right on the edge of all these orchards and kind of agricultural areas. And it's just like super typical just for people just to, you know, middle of the night, just drive all your stuff out, you know, some country road, just dump it all in some fields, just like leave it. It's just like, you see it a lot in the desert. You see it more so in the desert something I would see all the time. And sometimes the, the contrast was like so extreme, you know, just seeing like this beautiful pasture or this orchard and there's just like some washer and dryer just sitting there. Something that I would see all the time. And uh, something that I couldn't help but to comment on. And I'm just, I don't know, I wonder if other people see it. Turns out they do. Turns out people like to dump shit all over the place, all over the world. I always have people sending me photos of just like, hey, this reminds me of broken household appliance, you know, some microwave out in some daisy patch or something. 
Sit on the toaster like a rock No need to worry about a shock All of the microwaves are dead Just like the salamander said The refrigerators house the frogs The conduit is the hollow I'd probably keep all these spaz out songs for myself just because they're so fun to play. Yeah, that was me on the drums, just spazzing out. It was like I got to have my own little Keith Moon moment and just kind of burn off some energy. I mean, I, I listened to a lot of metal. Uh, I, I was a huge Metallica fan, like Megadeth, Mastodon. I love listening to that stuff. I wish I could play like that. I just can't, you know? But... uh I try sometimes and it's my fingers get tied up in knots and it's a complete mess, but um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go to my grave, a frustrated lead guitarist. For Beautiful Ground, I, I love the idea of tying in the Jed thing. The song is, once again, more about me and failed relationships. The same girl as the Charts and Graphs girl. It's also funny, though, because it's like, I don't think myself or anyone in the band are like super, you know, we're not very touchy-feely. We're kind of a little more closed up and kind of like, mum's the word, kind of manly. The more songs I started writing about relationships and kind of like whining about my girl problems, I was always kind of self-conscious about having to share those with the guys in the band. I mean, eventually they got used to it, but um, it was something I had to open up, something that took me a little while to open up comfortably with. Yeah, this one is kind of bridging the gap and it's also sort of putting it on more on Jed more so than myself, uh, where I don't have to come off as being so sensitive and tortured. Uh, but yeah, another failed relationship song. Here's one of Jed's poems. One night I did like this 15 hour drive from, from uh, Portland to Modesto and I was just exhausted and I didn't really have a place to stay. So I just like, yeah, slept in the park after I drank a bottle of Boone's Farm so I could go to sleep. And it's, it's also that, that part is just kind of reflecting on like, you know, 
I've always been slightly jealous of people who are, uh, it just seems like certain people are more well-adjusted. And I know it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. Like, and I'm a little jealous because I feel like I'm, like I got a few screws loose, but I've, I'm not giving up on that dream. Like I have this domestic thing that's still appealing to me and fascinating to me. And that was definitely like, you know, that song is sort of like, was me kind of seeing people who were doing it right. And I'm still, here I am sleeping out in the freaking park and uh, just on this path that I was on, which at that point, you know, was granddaddy and was like not wanting to be like this weirdo tragic musician, but just somehow kind of ending up there anyways on occasion. I never really glamorized, you know, being like a, a whole tragic artist thing, but um, despite my trying, it would always just kind of slip back into that on occasion. has always been one of my favorite people as far as he can really sing about sad pathetic things and make them sound funny and uh that's basically just me commenting on that you know i wish a lot of the sad pathetic things that i wrote about could come across a little bit more lighthearted, but somehow they end up sounding a little sadder than his versions Yeah, the evil can evil. Yeah, I feel like this theory has kind of got me into trouble, but it's, I feel like when you keep it real and you're able to write about it, like it really comes across. Like, I think if it's kind of the opposite of phoning it in, you know, or if you're just like, if your writing is like too trend based, you're just kind of following what other people are doing or following other people's stories. And it's just like, yeah, basically the perils of keeping it real. I always felt like Evil Knievel was like a prime example of that, you know, with all this breaking every bone in his body. And the guy was a complete nutcase and he was, he was just living life on the edge. But he was just like, you know, he was an American icon. He was, <laughs> people loved him despite all of his glaring flaws and kind of, I think what a personal nightmare he was as a <laughs> As a human, he was pretty controversial. But, you know, a lot of kids my age grew up really idolizing him, just with all of his exploits. And I just feel like it has been my duty to a degree to kind of keep it real. And I do feel like the music is going to benefit from that. Or like the the integrity of it is going to benefit from that. It's like all you have to do, though, is just like keep yourself alive. And all you have to do is kind of rein it in every now and then just enough to like get some results, you know? 
But uh, definitely, I think that's why that got tagged on to the end of Beautiful Ground. I found your house and I saw your car But I've no idea where you are From the dive view Tire scraps on the federal The sci-fi thing is is still interesting to me because I wouldn't I wouldn't classify myself as like a big sci-fi buff. You know, I can't cite all these authors and or filmmakers or whatever. But um, it's an easy place for me to go to for some reason. I think based on that imagery again that I was saying of just being sort of a bit lost and floating and kind of you know looking down and seeing all these people who seem to have it figured out and uh, wondering why you can't quite figure it out yourself. But I've also mentioned over the years how it's really important for me to, in my songwriting, to attempt to avoid cliches or just like, or overuse themes. And anytime I can kind of tap into something that was like, oh, I haven't, you know, I haven't heard too many people, you know, come at it from this approach or, or use this sort of imagery. If you can find something you, that you think is yours, that, that you're, something that you discovered that you think you discovered on your own and you're making it work and you're giving it like personality and life. And that's, that's a pretty cool accomplishment. I think that space at that point was an easy place for me to go to. There's a song on the album called minor at the dial of you, which is like epitomizes that. Yeah. That was just this whole scenario that I had imagined. It could have been like a, like a dream of a movie idea that I had, but it's basically you know, knowing that at some point our planet is going to be deplete from all of these precious metals and elements and whatever. So they're sending miners off to other planets. And so it becomes this common job, you know, just taken off from Earth. So I, then I started imagining, okay, they have like these little colonies, they have like stores, they have bars, they have, uh, you know, brothels or whatever, probably not too different than you know, watching like a gold mining movie or any kind of movie about miners, I suppose, but on another planet and in the future. So I imagine this miner, he's in this bar. There's maybe these countertop GPS video machines. And I was like, okay, you get to put in coins like you would like a video poker machine, but you dial up the coordinates of like any place on earth, your house, someplace that you're you want to have a look at, you know, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, but in this case, the guy's house and he's looking at the house and he can see things in real time. And he can see that there's this dude coming over and hanging out with his wife. <laughs> so, so anyways, that creates this scenario. But um, what I didn't know is I kind of accidentally like invented Google earth. <laughs> but it's basically, Kind of the same thing as Google Earth, except you don't put coins in it and it doesn't sit on top of a bar on a mining colony. <clears throat> Hello, welcome to Dalview. To locate the area in which you wish to observe, you must program in the longitude and the latitude. For a closer, more detailed picture, 
Operator, female operator vocals in Mine at the Dial of You were done by uh, Tim Dryden's wife. Her name is Rega. I still remember having her come over and uh, record the parts individually. And I just thought she had such an interesting voice. She's Danish. And um, she'd actually only lived in America for a few years by that point. Not that she hadn't been speaking English already in Denmark, but I was like, her voice is. A lot more interesting sounding than a lot of annoying sort of valley girl types that, that I knew in downtown Modesto. So <laughs> she won. She won the contract. That's, I don't know if it was the verses or the choruses, but something I've been lugging around for years and years. So I was really, I knew that the chorus had the ability to kind of soar. I think I had bigger dreams for it soaring more. Part of it still sounds a bit disjointed to me. Or just kind of like fragmented, that's fine. I think it was just because I had such high hopes for it. It's not that I don't like it, not that I haven't grown to appreciate its charms, but whatever. I love the fact that the spent a lot of time on the delays, the dream, dream, dreams. They're completely, you know, so many hours of just trying to get them in tempo. There's a lot of rewinding happening during those sections. And yeah, more than anything, I just wanted the chorus to, to fly. It's a lot of things to a lot of people. Like some people don't give a crap about it. And some people could just think it's like one of their favorite granddaddy songs. So I just got to step away at some point. So you The strings on So You Lane Toward the Sky are pretty, pretty gritty. <laughs> like 12-bit sawmill. Uh, <laughs> but they're cool, man. They, they, they work. But they definitely have a sound. They have a very kind of a, an automatic yet organic, grainy, but still kind of woodsy sound. But yeah, it worked for that song. It was... Uh, I think, was it the emulator, the emu? It's really cool looking. It's something definitely out of like a Star Trek uh, episode. But it's just, it's really kind of stark and gray. And it used floppy disks. And there's like some old electronic musician in Modesto. And, he's, and I found out that he had like this insane catalog of all these old floppy disks. Uh, and that was like a gold mine. Um, yeah, the, the machine would basically play whatever samples were on the floppy disks so that was cool i've had so many different string generating machines over the years and it's just you never quite know what you're going to get the trick is, is is to be okay with the fact that people are going to know they're not real strings so once once you're not trying to trick people into thinking that you're using real strings then the sky's the limit oh. 
that's the one I should probably get with a therapist on is the that reoccurring theme of like always longing for this home out there. But yeah, that's definitely it's all about that. And so you land toward the sky, just getting back home. I know that my thoughts were just like, we're not gonna end this album with a bang. We're gonna go out with this sweet and sad, but still hopeful and open-ended kind of um sentiment. There was at some point this period of time where the album was coming to an end, like, and I was pretty relieved because I was, I've just worn myself out. And I got to that point where a lot of people get when they're making albums where you don't know what you have, you know, you're just like steeped in self-doubt. And then there's this whole, you know, sophomore album thing, which played into the title, you know, the sort of joke take on the, the sophomore slump thing, which is tweaking that and ending up with uh, the software slump. So it was all this kind of, I think I was hell bent on this idea of just like diffusing the pressure. How can I diffuse the pressure? Because I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself. I have no idea what I've made here. It's super frightening to be so close to something like that. And all of a sudden just be thrust into the situation where everyone gets to listen to it and everyone gets to kind of make all these offhand comments or just like, you know, before swiping, just mentally swiping through, or I guess back then it's just like hitting fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. So I didn't want to just hand this album over that I, that I'd been slaving over and that I was really, really close to. And I was, and I was really insecure about. So in order to kind of take the steam out of, that whole idea a little bit, or just relieve the pressure. The guys came over the house one night and we just got wasted and we're just having fun. And we started making up all these joke songs and I was hitting the chord and just stupid lyrics and just nonsense, like total Beavis and Butthead, South Park style stuff back then. And then I started thinking about it. I was, I was like, well, and actually if we do a couple songs about robots and maybe like some kind of, there would be like two bait songs. We're going to bait them in the beginning and actually make them think that this is like, well, granddaddy, they're kind of known for nature and technology. And so actually make the two songs kind of allude to that. Basically we assembled it. It was just, it's, it's this insane collection of like 10 or so songs. And uh, we put it on a CDR, sent it to the label FedEx overnight, said, here's the new album you know, can't wait to work with you. And just like no information, not going to answer the phone for like a week. That was, that was the plan, which we failed at. Eventually it was just like, it got too heated. Apparently like some people almost got fired and it was just like, it started getting really serious. But um, we just wanted this image of just like everyone in the boardroom, you know, on these badass speakers at the label and then putting on that CD and it just being this total shit show and them just being, Oh God, what, what have we done? What have we gotten ourselves into? And uh, apparently it went down like that. It was uh, we succeeded, but in my mind, it's like, you couldn't lose by doing it like that. They're going to be so relieved that that wasn't the record. So whatever they end up getting for real as the record is just going to be like, it's going to be way better than that. So I was just like, well, at least they're going to be relieved and they're going to, they're going to like it just because it isn't what, it, what they just got done hearing. Good luck. Thank you. 
I would almost venture to say that I probably practiced that like, you know, eight to 10 times until I got like the right thank you. I like, I really sound like I appreciate it. Like, it's not like, like thank you or, or like, thank you. I think I got the right inflection on it. And it was just like, it was kind of weary, kind of tired, but, but very appreciative. Summing up the album, what my relationship is, I can't say it's my favorite. I don't actually have an album that's a favorite. As a songwriter, as a person who likes to produce music, I'm usually trying to just hit moments. So I have to like go through each album. There's definitely some moments that I hit on this album. So that's, that's usually what I'm hearing. You know, and the way that I am too, I'm like, all right, that's done. Let's get to work. Let's, let's learn how to play these songs and let's go out and, and uh, enter into this new chapter. And I don't think I really had much time to sit around and pat myself on the back about anything. Um, it was just really cool that other people's take and all these different forms so far reaching kind of started to take shape and it just became what it became. I could have never predicted any of it. So I'm all for being positively surprised. And that's definitely what happened with Software Slump. Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about Granddaddy. You'll also find a link to stream or purchase the Software Slump. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 